Welcome to conference coverage highlights presented by ReachMD on XM160 and powered by Health Day. Conference coverage highlights features the latest clinical information and research findings from the 2009 annual meeting of the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. The meeting took place November 5th through the 10th in Miami Beach, Florida. I'm your host, Dr. Markina. And I'm your co-host, Sue Berg. Research was presented at the meeting in over 100 scientific sessions, 250 abstract presentations, and numerous workshops and technical exhibits. Asthma research was presented by Dr. Brian Schroer of the Cleveland Clinic, which suggests that obese patients may be more likely to experience poor asthma control compared with lean or overweight patients. In a retrospective chart review, investigators assessed 184 adult asthma patients. The patients concurrently completed an asthma control test, spirometry, and exhaled nitric oxide tests, and had their body mass index calculated. The researchers found that 63% of patients had moderate or severe persistent asthma. Based on body mass index, 28% were categorized as lean, 34% overweight, and 38% obese. 50.7% of obese patients reported experiencing well-controlled asthma in the asthma control test compared with about 68% of lean or overweight patients. BMI did not correlate significantly with level of asthma severity. The study's authors concluded that these findings suggest elevated BMI may be associated with impaired asthma control in the absence of increased airway inflammation or airway obstruction. Dr. David Perlman of the Colorado Allergy and Asthma Centers in Denver reported on a clinical trial involving an investigational combination asthma therapy. The findings suggest that the combination therapy, momedazone furoate and formoterol, may be a safe alternative to traditional therapy with corticosteroids alone or corticosteroids and long-acting beta-2 agonists. This placebo-controlled double-blind multicenter study randomized 781 patients 42 years of age on average to four treatment arms, combination momedazone furoate and formoterol, momedazone furoate alone, formoterol alone, or placebo. Overall, the researchers found that the proportion of patients experiencing a treatment-related adverse event was relatively low and similar among the four treatment arms. Adverse events were experienced by about 9% of patients taking combination momedazone furoate and formoterol, 5.7% taking momedazone furoate, 5.4% taking formoterol alone, and 7.7% taking placebo. The most common adverse event reported during the blinded treatment portion of the study was upper respiratory tract infection reported in 7.2% of patients. The next most common adverse events were nasopharyngitis and headache. However, most of these adverse events were not considered treatment-related, only a small number of treatment discontinuations, and no incidences of treatment-related deaths were reported. The study's authors concluded that combination momedazone furoate and formoterol therapy was considered safe and well-tolerated. Another study evaluated the efficacy of Montelukast compared with placebo in pediatric asthma patients. Researchers conducted a pooled analysis of two randomized double-blind placebo-controlled studies. One study treated children aged 6 months to 24 months over 6 weeks, while the second study treated patients aged 2 years to 5 years over 12 weeks. The pooled analysis only included the first 6 weeks of treatment. A total of 632 patients received Montelukast and 308 patients received placebo. 
Researchers found that modalucast therapy was associated with a significant increase in average percentage of days without beta agonist use compared to placebo at 50% versus 44% respectively. Also, patients in the modalucast arm had 1.27 beta agonist treatments per day compared with 1.44 from the placebo group, a significant decrease. The study authors concluded that in young children with asthma, 4 milligrams of modalucast significantly increased the percentage of days without beta agonist use. It also decreased the number of beta agonist treatments needed per day, both as compared to placebo. Results were presented from a Phase three clinical study that looked at an ultra-short course of subcutaneous immunotherapy in individuals with seasonal ragweed pollen-allergic rhinoconjunctivitis. The subcutaneous immunotherapy was delivered in a pre-seasonal four-injection course of ragweed-modified allergen tyrosine absorbate, or MATA, with monophospholipid A, or MPL, administered over one month. A total of 993 subjects were randomized in a two-to-one fashion to receive either the immunotherapy or placebo. Anti-ragweed immunoglobulin G and E levels were determined by immunoassay prior to treatment, post-treatment, and at the end of the pollen season. The researchers found that those in the placebo group had a median anti-ragweed immunoglobulin G level of 200 micrograms per liter at both baseline and post-treatment. At the end of the pollen season, the median anti-ragweed immunoglobulin levels had risen to 419 micrograms per liter. In contrast, participants who received the ultra-short immunotherapy experienced an 11-fold increase in immunoglobulin G level. This level remained high at the end of the pollen season. Average anti-ragweed immunoglobulin E increased in the placebo group. It also increased from baseline to post-treatment in the ultra-short immunotherapy group, but did not increase as expected during the pollen season. The study's authors concluded that this ultra-short course of subcutaneous immunotherapy was effective in increasing anti-ragweed immunoglobulin G levels among individuals with seasonal ragweed pollenallergic rhinoconjunctivitis. The authors said that this increases a favorable effect and has been associated with successful clinical outcomes. Research on asthma education was presented suggesting the use of certified asthma nurse educators may help improve adherence to guidance recommendations for discharging children hospitalized with asthma. Also, an intensive case management program is associated with fewer asthma-related symptoms and healthcare utilization. In one study, Dr. Bruce Nickerson of the Children's Hospital of Orange County in California and colleagues analyzed data from almost 200 charts of patients hospitalized in 2007 to retrospectively assess provider discharge plans. 55% of cases were seen by a certified asthma nurse educator. These cases were more likely to have a peak flow meter and a spacer provided. 100% of cases with a certified asthma nurse educator provided peak flow meters and spacers compared to only 60% and 74% of cases respectively when there was no certified asthma educator. In general, the cases with a certified educator showed a trend toward more asthma action plans and prescriptions of inhaled corticosteroids. The authors of this study concluded that education sessions provided by certified asthma nurse educators had an impact on provider discharge plans with a greater percentage following National Asthma Education and Prevention Program guideline recommendations than in the control group. The authors also report that as a result of this study, changes are in progress to include direct communication with a physician. In a second study, Dr. Andrew Goodman of the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene and colleagues analyzed data for at least one year 
on 68 children enrolled in the East Harlem Asthma Center of Excellence. The East Harlem Asthma Center of Excellence seeks to reduce asthma-related emergency department visits and hospitalizations by providing detailed instructions from counselors on the use of prescribed medication, flow meters, and ways to avoid asthma triggers. At baseline, 63% of patients had two or more emergency department visits in the previous year, compared to 12% during the follow-up period. In addition, both day and night symptoms were also less common after follow-up than at baseline. In patients with hereditary angioedema, a novel plasma calocrine inhibitor known as acalantide may be an effective treatment for acute attacks. In two Phase three trials from the Edema Development Program, investigators randomly assigned 143 patients to receive either acalantide or placebo. The researchers found that median time elapsed until symptom improvement was 67 minutes with a calentide versus 105 minutes for placebo. Also, 73% of patients treated with a calentide experienced symptom improvement within four hours of dosing versus 58% of patients taking placebo. The authors conclude that their results suggest a calentide achieves rapid and sustained relief of symptoms associated with acute hereditary angioedema attacks. In a study conducted at the University of Illinois in Chicago, children of mothers with low levels of certain antioxidants may be at a higher risk of developing asthma. Data was analyzed from the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey on over 2,000 pairs of mothers and children. The children ranged from two months to six years of age. The objective was to assess any relationships of doctor-diagnosed asthma in children with maternal levels of the antioxidants beta-carotene, alpha-carotene, and beta-cryptoxanthin. The researchers found that mothers of children with asthma had lower serum concentrations of these antioxidants. The authors say their findings add to the growing body of literature linking asthma in children with maternal dietary factors and highlight the need for longitudinal studies to further examine the relationships of maternal diet during pregnancy or early in the child's life with the risk of asthma in children. According to a study presented on patients with severe egg allergy, desensitization of these patients is possible. Researchers in Japan performed open-challenge testing in 29 high-risk patients with severe egg allergy. In order to determine a threshold tolerance, researchers began by giving patients small amounts of egg yolk under close monitor in the hospital. They doubled the amount every hour up to three times a day. Patients continued the same dose every day at home for between 5 and 30 days. When the patient was able to ingest one boiled egg yolk without reaction for two weeks, challenge testing began with whole egg. After 10 months, the researchers found that 86% of patients were able to eat one-fourth of a cooked whole egg. A significant decrease in egg white-specific immunoglobulin E levels was observed after tolerance induction. The authors conclude that this method may be an effective treatment for high-risk patients with egg allergy. In a second study, investigators surveyed 96 school nurses in Mississippi to determine food allergy management plans in Mississippi public schools. Food allergy emergency plans are recommended by the American Academy of Pediatrics, the National Association of School Nurses, and the Mississippi Department of Education. 97% of the school nurse respondents reported having at least one food allergic student at their school. However, only 30% of respondents reported that all of their food allergic students were on a food allergy action plan. Another 29% of respondents reported that 10% or less of food allergic students were on a food allergy action plan. 
The investigators write that the students were more likely to have food allergy action plans if the school nurse received information on food allergies from parents or a physician or if the student attended a school in an urban area. Research was presented suggesting that the treatment of allergic rhinitis may improve coexisting conditions, including conjunctivitis, asthma, sinusitis, otitis media with effusion, and sleep disorders. According to the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology, allergic rhinitis is the most prevalent chronic condition in patients under age 18, occurring in more than 50 million people in the United States. Researchers at the meeting called allergic rhinitis a global health problem that has associations with asthma as well as sleep disorders, emotional problems, decreased cognitive functioning, and social functioning. One study presented at the meeting compared the prevalence of sinusitis in patients with perennial allergic rhinitis compared to normal controls. Researchers found patients with perennial allergic rhinitis reported a 67.5% increased prevalence of sinusitis, compared to about 33.5% in non-allergic controls. Investigators also found that allergic rhinitis interfered with sleep in as many as 57% of adult patients and 88% of pediatric patients studied. Allergic rhinitis patients reported difficulty falling asleep, nocturnal awakening, early awakening, non-restorative sleep, and snoring. These findings seem to suggest that treating the underlying inflammation may lead to relief of symptoms and reduce consequences and comorbidities in patients with allergic rhinitis. According to two studies presented at the meeting, the availability and use of epinephrine by emergency medical services for treatment of anaphylaxis varies nationwide. Also, less than a third of anaphylaxis patients prescribed self-injectable epinephrine actually use it prior to arrival at a hospital. In one study, investigators surveyed EMS medical directors in all 50 states. They found that only 17 states require emergency medical technicians at the basics level to carry epinephrine. 15 states do not require emergency medical technicians of any level to carry epinephrine. The main reasons cited were lack of training, the cost of auto-injectors, and legal concerns. In a second study, investigators studied 58 anaphylaxis patients who presented at an emergency department. Most patients understood that they were having a severe allergic reaction that required immediate medical attention. However, only 19% arrived at the hospital by ambulance. Furthermore, only about 30% of patients prescribed self-injectable epinephrine used it prior to arrival at the emergency department. The authors of the study conclude that despite a reasonable level of awareness about anaphylaxis, there's still a need to implement educational models for expediting first aid and seeking expert medical care for anaphylaxis. Thank you for listening to conference coverage highlights from the 2009 annual meeting of the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. The meeting took place November 5th through the 10th in Miami Beach, Florida. Conference coverage highlights is a presentation of ReachMD Radio, broadcast on XM160 and by live stream at ReachMD.com, and powered by Health Day.